We continue with our sermon series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Read, listen, take to heart. And we continue with a section of this book that consists of seven letters written by the Lord Jesus Christ to seven churches that are spread throughout the province of Asia. And we come today to the letter that Jesus writes to the church in Smyrna. I hope you have your Bibles with you. And I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 2. And I've asked Melanie Stain if she'll read our passage today. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is God's word. May we pray together. Father God, this is indeed your word. All of scripture is your word breathed out. But here we see you doing something very unusual in that we have your son Jesus actually dictating the very words of God to John. Father, any insights that I have gained into this text have come through you. You've given me eyes to see, the gift of literacy. You've given me my mind that can think and process. Even my ability to turn the pages of a Bible commentary comes from you. And Father, any experience that we have of your word touching and quickening our hearts today is due to the work of your Holy Spirit within us. So I pray today, please, Lord, speak to us. Encourage us and challenge us and change us through your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. And take your glory, Lord. Amen. Such a short letter, but packed full of encouragement and challenge to us today. So let's dive straight in. And I'm going to arrange my sermon under five headings. We'll begin by looking at the city of Smyrna, then the church and its sufferings. We'll look at the call to suffering, the temptation to compromise, and the comfort to those who suffer. So the city, the church, the call, compromise, and comfort. Let's begin with the city. Uh, while I was looking for pictures of Smyrna this week, I came across an article with the heading Top 8 Reasons to Move to and Live in Smyrna. I discovered later that it was talking about a city in Georgia in the United States. But it made me think what might have been included if this had been an article in a magazine back in 95 AD, perhaps Ancient Living magazine. Top 8 Reasons to Move to and Live in Smyrna. 
I'll just mention three things that may have been mentioned in such an article. Firstly, Smyrna was a beautiful city. It was known as the glory of Asia. It was a coastal city with a natural harbour, and it was a city that had been carefully planned and laid out. Smyrna had been destroyed in 600 BC and for 400 years had just been a collection of little villages. But in 200 BC, Lysimachus, a successor of Alexander the Great, had rebuilt it and had rebuilt it according to a well-designed unified plan. It had great, broad, sweeping streets, the most famous of which was called the Street of Gold, which began at the Temple of Xerxes and wound its way through and up the mountain, ending at the Temple of Cybele. Secondly, uh, with it being a port city, it was a very wealthy city. The people there had a great standard of living. It certainly was a top place to move to in the ancient world. And thirdly, it was a patriotic city. It was extremely loyal to the Roman Empire. As William Barclay puts it in his Bible commentary, long before Rome was the undisputed mistress of the world, Smyrna had cast in its lot with Rome, never to waver in its fidelity. All the way back in 195 BC, Smyrna had erected a temple to Dea Roma, the spirit of Rome personified as a goddess. And in AD 26, along with six other cities in Asia, it entered a bid to erect a temple to the godhead of Emperor Tiberius. And Smyrna's bid won. The temple was built, along with temples to many of the other Greek and Roman gods. Extremely patriotic and loyal to Rome. Smyrna also had a stadium in which they held their annual athletic games, a bit like the Olympic Games, and the city was also the birthplace of the poet Homer. But while the city of Smyrna may have been magnificent, while it may well have been the top place to move to and to live in in the ancient world, the church at Smyrna was under pressure. Smyrna was a church that suffered. We've looked at the city, and now let's look at the church. In verse 9, the Lord Jesus says, I know your afflictions. The Greek word that is used here is thlipsis, which literally means pressure. In classical Greek, the word was used to describe a man being tortured to death by having a large boulder laid on him and being crushed under its weight. Agonizing, painful pressure. Affliction. And in the rest of the letter, Jesus goes on to describe four particular pressures, four ways that this church experienced suffering. First, the church in Smyrna suffered through poverty. Verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. It's surprising that in such a wealthy and prosperous city like Smyrna, anyone would have been poor. But the Christians in Smyrna weren't poor by accident. Their poverty is linked to their affliction. Now, Pastor John Stott speculates that perhaps as Christians they'd renounced shady business practices. 
He points out that still today, it does not always pay to be a Christian, nor is honesty by any means always the best policy if material gain is our ambition. But equally likely, as we saw in Ephesus last time, is that their fellow countrymen didn't want to do business with them. It may have been hard for Christians to find employment in this city, and it also seems that as part of the persecution they experienced, from time to time their shops were confiscated and their homes ransacked. The writer to the Hebrews seems to be addressing a similar situation when he writes this in Hebrews chapter 10. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So the church in Smyrna suffered through poverty and second, the church at Smyrna suffered through slander. Verse 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Remember how we saw that Smyrna was a very patriotic city and how they were very loyal to Rome. Well, that loyalty was tested through emperor worship. All citizens once a year had to go along to the temple to Rome or to the temple to the emperor and burn a pinch of incense and say the words, Caesar is Lord. All citizens, except the Jewish people. You see, the Romans had learned through bitter experience and through much bloodshed that the Jewish people would never worship Caesar. And so Jewish people were given a special dispensation from the Roman Senate. Judaism was considered a religio licita, a legal religion which was permitted not to worship the gods of Rome. Now, when Christianity first came on the scene, it was considered to be a sect within Judaism. And so it too fell under the umbrella of a religio licita. But the Jewish people soon made it very clear that Christianity had nothing to do with them as far as they were concerned. And so Christianity became a religio illicita, an illegal religion. And so Christians were persecuted. I think we can understand something of the Jewish people's particular opposition to the Christians. Not only did they believe that Christians worshipped a false messiah, but they were also deeply concerned about their own legal position. Their status as a religio licita could be taken away at any time. And so when Christians who were associated with Judaism, and many of whom were Jewish, started to refuse to worship the emperor, the Jewish community became even more anxious. So there was a certain amount of self-preservation in their animosity towards Christians. They persecuted the Christians and informed on their Christian neighbours to demonstrate their loyalty to Rome. And in so doing, they demonstrated the truth of something that Jesus had said in John chapter 8. 
You may remember how in that chapter the Jewish religious leaders are boasting to Jesus that they are Abraham's children, true Jews. Jesus says to them, you're looking for a way to kill me. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, in a similar way, the Jewish people in the city of Smyrna were wanting to kill the followers of Christ and were lying about and slandering Christians. And so they too, instead of being true Jews, had taken on the character of the devil, who is a murderer and a liar and the father of lies. Maybe let me mention some of the slanders that were leveled against Christians. Christians were accused of cannibalism because they had a meal where they ate flesh and drank blood. Christians held love feasts. We know that to be communion, but these were thought of by their enemies to have been sexual orgies. They were accused of atheism because they had no images of their gods. In fact, they were called atheists. And they were thought of as being unpatriotic and seditious, because they would not say, Caesar is Lord. Now, these slanders may sound trivial and laughable to us, but they were serious charges and must have been so hurtful to these believers who knew that none of that was true and was in fact a horrible distortion of the grace and the forgiveness that they had found in Christ. So the church in Smyrna suffered through poverty, and slander. And what does Jesus say about this? Well, it would be so nice if he said, I know your affliction and poverty and slander, but don't worry, things will get better. That's not what he says. From speaking about their present sufferings, Jesus goes on to speak about their future sufferings. Verse 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. He says, in effect, things are going to get worse before they get better. In addition to their current suffering, the Lord Jesus speaks thirdly about how they will suffer through imprisonment. Verse 10, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Prison may not sound too bad to us, but ancient prisons were not pleasant places at all. In fact, the Roman government would not take the trouble to look after prisoners, and prison was often merely the prelude to death. Did you notice something very interesting and important in this description of suffering through imprisonment? In his book on Revelation, Daryl Johnson points out that if we had a video of the events in Smyrna, we would see Roman police cheered on by some religious figures, rounding up Christians and throwing them into jail. So the devil will imprison some of you? How did he get into the act? Jesus is saying that there is more to reality than meets the unaided eye. He is helping the church in Smyrna to wake up to the whole picture. Behind the threatened political forces and hostile religious forces, was the power of evil out to destroy Jesus Christ and all that he has made. Jesus is reminding them and us that, as in his own case, 
the real opposition is spiritual. That is the Apostle Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 6, where he writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This idea of the devil may seem quaint and outdated to some, but I think if we take an honest look at our world, we have to acknowledge that there is a depth to human wickedness and depravity that just cannot be explained outside a belief in a personal, intelligent, malevolent, powerful and evil force. But at the same time, this understanding is hopefully something that enables us to obey Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 5, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We recognize that the men and women who persecute us are not the real enemy, but are being used by spiritual forces to get at Christ. We will see later in the book of Revelation that because Satan can no longer harm Jesus, he goes after the next best thing, which is Jesus' disciples, you and me. But fourthly, not only did the church at Smyrna suffer through poverty and slander and imprisonment, they were about to suffer through death. Verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death. John wrote this letter to Smyrna in about 95 AD, and there was a young man in his 20s who would have been sat in the congregation and heard Jesus' letter read out to the church. His name was Polycarp. Sixty years later, in 155 AD, when he was 86 years old, Polycarp was the lead elder, the bishop of the church in Smyrna. In February of that year, there was another outbreak of persecution against the Christians in Asia. A great festival was held in Smyrna. Uh, the proconsul Statius Quadratus was presiding over the athletic games in that stadium that I mentioned earlier. And as part of the entertainment, 11 Christians had been brought, mostly from Philadelphia, to be thrown to the lions. This spectacle so delighted the crowd that they shouted out, Away with the atheists! Let search be made for Polycarp. And so the city sheriff and a number of armed police eventually tracked Polycarp down to the farm that he was sheltering in, in the countryside. When they arrived, Polycarp ordered that a meal be served to them while he went to his room and prayed for two hours. They put Polycarp into a carriage and they took him towards the stadium. And the sheriff, who was called Herod, and the sheriff's father, Nicetes, sat on either side of him on the journey and tried to persuade him. They said, what harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and in offering incense and so on, and thus saving yourself? But after being quiet for a long time, he eventually said to them, I do not intend to do what you advise. They took him into the stadium, had him stand in front of the proconsul, and the crowd went absolutely wild, calling for his death. The proconsul said to him, Have respect for your age. 
swear by the genius of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. Polycarp must have been a bit of a cantankerous old man because he looked at the crowd who were going so wild and he waved his hand at them and said, away with the atheists. The proconsul still wanted to let him go and said, swear and I will release you. Curse the Christ. Polycarp turned to him and said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so he was burned at the stake. Unfortunately, the wind in the stadium was blowing the wrong way, which meant it took the flames a long time to consume him. And so eventually a soldier put him out of his misery by thrusting him through with his sword. So did Polycarp die for his faith, not the only martyr at Smyrna, but probably the most famous one. Which brings us thirdly to the call to suffer, suffering as the mark of a true Christian. Do you remember how John begins his letter to the seven churches of Asia back in chapter 1? He says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. As Daryl Peterson says, John links these three words, suffering, kingdom, perseverance. To be in Jesus means to partake of the kingdom of God, which means partaking of the suffering which the inbreaking of the kingdom naturally causes, and partaking of the perseverance being in the kingdom produces. Despite the ever-popular notion that following Jesus means health and wealth and prosperity and increases, and a promotion at work, and that your marriage will be bliss and your children will always obey you, Jesus was very clear that the call to follow him is a call to die. Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And he explained in great detail what would happen to the disciples whose calling was to imitate him. We don't have time to look at all the passages. It would take too long. But look a little bit later at Matthew chapter 5, and Matthew chapter 10, and John chapter 15, and John chapter 16. A good summary of which is John 15 verse 20, where Jesus says, Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They will persecute you also. As we saw a little earlier on, our call is to follow Christ. And if we are doing so correctly, then we will draw to ourselves the same opposition and persecution and suffering and in some cases death that he endured. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He writes to the Philippians in chapter 1 and says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, 
and now here that I still have. At the moment, we have the privilege of living in a country where historically the Christian faith has been tolerated, even respected. I think, though, that we're beginning to feel some pressure, not a crushing pressure, but certainly the beginnings of affliction. Because I don't know where these WhatsApp sermons may end up, I can't give you specific details, but I know of a doctor who recently made a stand on a particular ethical issue because of his Christian convictions and was immediately reported to the medical council and had a lawsuit filed against him. He faces the possibility of losing his career, of not being able to practice as a medical doctor. Pressure. A recent judgment now makes it impossible for employees at the Department of Home Affairs to refuse to conduct any marriages on the basis of conscience. And future changes to the South African Marriage Act, as well as the promotion of equality and prevention of unfair discrimination amendment bill, may make things more difficult for Christian pastors and churches and organisations in the future. Pressure. It's becoming more and more difficult for high school students and university students to express traditional Christian beliefs on subjects like marriage and sex and other ethical issues. Pressure. And what are we to do when the pressure mounts? We've looked at the call to suffer. Let's look briefly at the temptation to compromise. In verse 10, Jesus says, be faithful, even to the point of death. Let me simply quote Pastor John Stott on this verse. He writes these sobering words. What about ourselves? We are people of flesh. We shrink from suffering. The ugly truth is that we tend to avoid suffering by compromise. Our tendency is to dilute the gospel and to lower our standards in order not to give offence. We love the praise of our fellow human beings more than the praise of God. I am not recommending that we develop a martyr complex or that we court opposition. I am just saying that if we compromised less, we would undoubtedly suffer more. I've been challenged recently about the need to share my faith with others in this difficult time, with strangers who I might interact with at the shops or even over the phone, those annoying telemarketers. But it's so interesting. When I had an opportunity recently, I found something very tragic. I was getting vaccinated and was chatting with one of the admin people and she said something to me along the lines of, well, you've just got to take it one day at a time. And I replied, Yes, well, if we trust in God, we will be safe. And I realised sorrowfully how easy it was to speak about a generic God, which is slightly less offensive than naming the name that is above every name, speaking to people about trusting the Lord Jesus. Of course, I know the passage in First Peter about sharing our faith with gentleness and respect, but I wonder how often I've used that as an excuse not to bear witness at all. Paul writes to Timothy from a Roman prison in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. We've looked at the city of Smyrna 
the church and its sufferings, the call to suffering, the temptation to compromise. What comfort is there for those who suffer? What comfort is there here for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan today? What comfort is there for an employee at the Department of Home Affairs who faces losing her job? What comfort or encouragement is there for those of us who feel nervous and concerned by the teaching of this passage, who wonder if we were ever called to, whether we would have the courage of those in Revelation chapter 12 who did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death? Well, there are at least four things that Jesus says that comfort those who suffer or who anticipate suffering. In verse 10, he says, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. But he doesn't stop there. The command not to be afraid would be cold comfort without these four additional truths about Jesus. Firstly, the comfort is that Jesus is victorious. Look at how Jesus begins this letter in verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. In his commentary on this passage, William Barclay says, The risen Christ is one who has experienced the worst that life could do to him. He had died, and he had died in the agony of the cross. No matter what happened to the Christians of Smyrna, Jesus Christ had been through it before. Jesus Christ can help because he knows what life is like at its worst and he has experienced the bitterness of death. Nothing has happened to us which has not already happened to him. The second comfort is that Jesus is all-knowing. He says to these believers in Smyrna, verse 8, I know. He knows their afflictions and their poverty, the slander, the imprisonment, even death. And as we've just seen, he knows about this from the inside of those experiences. More than that, he knows the true reality of their situation. In verse 9, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. The world may look at Christians and say that they are contemptible and poor and weak and unintelligent and unimpressive, but Almighty God knows the true picture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul describes something of his own sufferings for the kingdom, and he says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Our true status, which Jesus truly knows, is vastly different to what the world believes about us. The third comfort is that Jesus is sovereign. He is in complete control. He begins the letter in verse 8 by saying, I am the first and the last. 
And then look again at verse 10. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Two things here show us that no matter the evil that may befall us, our sovereign God is in control. Firstly, Jesus says that there is a time limit to this particular persecution. The 10 days mentioned here are not a literal number. It refers to a short, complete time of persecution. And the message is that God puts a limit on this and says, in effect, this far and no further. But secondly, God is so in control of this evil that it turns into a test. Remember the memory verse from our last book study, 1 Peter chapter 1. These various trials that have caused you grief have come so that your faith of greater value than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Clearly, in this, in this passage, God is not the author of the terrible persecutions that are breaking out against the Christians in Smyrna. Satan is the author, but God is sovereign. He is so in control that he's able to take the evil that Satan throws at these believers and turn it into something good. Exactly the same thing that happened at the cross. We read in Acts chapter 4 how Peter and the other disciples pray, Lord, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Satan and all the forces of evil work against Jesus to destroy him, and yet in so doing they bring about the very thing they are trying to avoid, the salvation of the world and their ultimate destruction. God's power is so great that he's able to use evil to defeat itself, a little bit like a good judo fighter uses his opponent's own strength to defeat him. Satan tempts in order to destroy and our Father turns this into a test in order to refine us. And even if the worst should happen, and we see pictures of Afghani Christians martyred for their faith, we remind ourselves of how Paul could speak about his own upcoming execution at the hands of the Romans as simply being like a drink offering poured out on the top of his life, which had been a sacrifice of faithful service. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Even while we may not see it, God is using evil against itself to bring about good. And then the fourth comfort, Jesus is generous. He makes two promises to his suffering people. Verse 10, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. The word for crown here refers to the victor's crown. Remember the athletic games that were held once a year at Smyrna. The winner received a crown of laurel leaves. It was a huge honour, but of course it would soon wither and decay. Here the Lord Jesus promises us the crown of life, the crown which is life itself, as Peter puts it in chapter 1, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade.
And secondly, Jesus promises in verse 11, he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. We'll read about the second death three more times in the last few chapters of the book. The first death is the death that we all die. But the second death is eternal separation from God in hell. Jesus does not promise any of us immunity from the first death. All of us will one day die. But he does promise that all of those who overcome will not be hurt at all by the second death. We are totally exempt. And so, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, when he's speaking to his disciples about all that they will suffer because of him, says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And so, the city of Smyrna and the church that suffered, the call to suffer, the temptation towards compromise, and the comfort to those who suffer. Smyrna is the only church that the Lord Jesus has no words of condemnation for, and the church exists to this day. It's the city of Izmir, and even within this Muslim country of Turkey, there is an Eastern Orthodox church that is still there. I don't believe that the timing of today's passage is coincidental. As Jesus says in verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And if perhaps you are facing pressure today, at home, at work, at university, amongst your family or friends or colleagues, the pressure of being maligned or slandered, misunderstood, excluded, Perhaps the pressure of making a stand that will cost you something, your job, your prospects of promotion. May God grant that he would give us the grace not to compromise, but to stand fast, knowing that Jesus is victorious and all-knowing and sovereign and generous. And if today we aren't facing poverty or slander or prison or death for our faith, let's remember the words of Hebrews chapter 13. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Amen.